has a wonderful song. But do you notice it gives the human experience side of that equation? Let me ask you something theologically. Does Jesus grow more sweet every day? No. But as we walk with Him, what happens to our perception of that and what the writer is indicating, the half cannot be fancied this side the golden shore. We can't hardly know a speck about Him here. We'll be learning about Him forever. What a wonderful God we have. I hope that thrills your soul. All righty. Join me again back in Romans. And again, we're taking a... Uh, I don't like to call it a detour. I don't think that's a good way to put it, like we're sidestepping things, but we have been going through the book of James, and it seemed like a good time to give a bit of a refresher course on this vital passage. We did a little bit of Romans 6, and then today I think we'll be done. Now, we're not going to go into Romans 8. I'll commend you to your own study on that. We'll at least set the table heading into Romans 8. And again, I would remind us, uh, it's not just the, the text that's inspired itself, but the logical progression, the spiritually logical progression that's inspired. And uh, many even secular writers have said the spiritual logic or the logic presented in the book of Romans is utterly astounding. There are secular writers that consider it one of the finest pieces of literature ever written. And these are guys that don't know God because of the way it systematically makes its case. And again, this critical text in, in Romans 6 through 8, we're, we're past talking about justification, at least as far as the way of salvation. Uh, but in Romans uh, 6 through 8, we're looking at what the cross has to do with our daily sanctification, with our, our Christian growth. And I've emphasized uh, throughout the years how utterly, utterly critical this passage is at setting the stage for what comes in the epistles uh, that are to follow. And so... Uh, we're touching on this section dealing with our fallen human nature uh, because it is so utterly vital. I think most of us know what it's like to have a bad nightmare. Are there any good nightmares? Maybe saying bad nightmare is a little bit uh, unnecessary. But you know that type of dream where it's dark? Not just dark, but dark. Blacker than the inside of a cow, as someone put it. And there's an eerie moonlight maybe coming through the trees. And uh, maybe you can see it, or maybe you can't, but there's something coming after you. And you take off running. And it's gaining on you. And you know what happens next, right? You try to scream and no sound comes out. And your legs all of a sudden feel like lead. And you slow down and you can't run. Now picture at that point, whatever this thing is, this hideous monster that's on your tail, leaps and pins you to the ground. And just as you flip over and are about to be devoured, you look up in this thing's face. And you recognize that that thing has your face on it looking right back at you, maybe with fangs added. And then you awake, of course, and it was just a bad dream. That's really not unlike what Paul is describing here in the latter half of Romans 7, only with him, of course, it was no dream. And before we get to this uh, glorious subject matter of Romans 8, it's critical that we pass through another spirit-inspired tunnel, if you want to call it that. Again, back in Romans 3, it was very black there, leading right up to verses 20 and 21. The net was being drawn on sinful humanity. Paul had systematically dismantled the lost pagan world. And then he turned his spiritual guns on the religious moral man sitting high up on the mountain in Romans 2, who thought that, yes, I'm not like them, and he starts to dismantle that man's fake religion. And then he draws the net on the whole world in Romans 3 that all are under sin, all are condemned. There is none good, none righteous. And of course, the whole goal of that was to bring us to the free righteousness that Christ wants to give us 
without any human merit whatsoever. Now, the passage that we just read this morning is maybe just as dark, although it's directed at the children of light. And the obvious goal is to cause us as Christians to abandon all hope, all confidence, all false notions about our own fallen nature. Maybe you've noticed, and I hope you appreciate the fact that God is not interested in flattery. I mean, uh, when you read through the Scriptures, do you see God propping up humanity with hollow phraseology and cute little religious platitudes? Just believe and everything will work out okay. When I'm told that, I'm thinking, says who? By the way, when every time God says fear not in the Scriptures, He always gives a reason. But God doesn't want to flatter us because that is no help at all. I think of it's, it's interesting. If you go through the life of Christ and observe His conversations, many times what He did with His detractors, He did it to His own disciples too, He would go right past the surface level argument and go right for the main issue. John 7, he's teaching at the temple, and these Jews come and they say, I'm paraphrasing, they're saying, Oy vey, how does this guy teach like that? How is he so eloquent and, and forceful and persuasive when he's not been taught by one of our distinguished rabbis? The Lord says to them, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the teaching. In other words, your fundamental issue is not worrying about my education. Your fundamental issue is your rebellion against God. And until you get that figured out, you'll never understand sound teaching. I think of Peter. We were there a few weeks ago with a missionary. Remember Peter sinks, Matthew 14, walking in the water? And I don't look at that and think, I don't criticize Peter. I, I commend Peter. In fact, I have compassion on him. But remember, the Lord comes to him. What would you expect him to say? Maybe, uh, you know, Peter, it's been a long day. You're tired. I know that I essentially showed you how powerless you were in front of thousands of uh, people. And then without sleep, I sent you into a boat on purpose in the middle of a storm. And then right then when you thought you were going to die, you thought a ghost was walking and you weren't sure which was better, the ghost or death. And then here you are walking on water and you sunk and this is a terrifying storm, so I, I get it. Remember what the Lord says to him? He diagnoses the problem as little faith. So he's saying, Peter, the root issue here, it's not the multitudes needing food, it's not the waves, it's not the boat, it's not what you think you see, it's not these, this storm. It's that you will not see me for who I am, and therefore you sunk. Well, what makes us sink in our battle of sanctification? Well, many times it's we won't see God for who He is. And the other side of that coin, we've never really swallowed what we really are in this war. I mean, God loves us too much to puff us up with false hopes and dreams. Uh, this is why so much of what passes as counseling today fails right from the beginning. Because it's based on the shallow sands of self-esteem and self-help and self, self, self. And Freudian transference of blame rather than really getting down to brass tacks and dealing with these things below the surface where the real problem really exists. Maybe one of the reasons why the Lord's people can have such a struggle at times and be thrown all over the place like a cork in the ocean and never seem to gain long-term stability of character, at least if we really know ourselves, we may think that. Maybe the reason sometimes is we've never embraced what the Holy Spirit has to say regarding the nature that we still possess as Christians. When you think about it this way, 
to whatever degree you are deceived about your sin nature, or you place confidence in it, or you practically deny you have it, to whatever degree you do that, you cannot walk in the Spirit. I want to remind us at the beginning, the Lord is not saying these things to make us hang our head in guilt and shame. Passages like this aren't like some person from your past constantly reminding you of something you did in 1962. God is laying this out as a pathway to greener pastures. God never gives blackness to His children without a good end that He's aiming at. He never does that. He isn't saying this to make us accept defeat and make excuses for sin. That's not the purpose either. He is saying this to make us able to say, nay, but in all these things, things and things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. So this morning we're talking about the undiminished traitor within. Again, last week we were in verses 7 to 13, which is essentially flashing back. If you look at a timeline of Paul's life, this was going back to his lost days as a Pharisee. Uh, when the law of God begins to collide with his own sinful nature, and even as he stood externally as a bastion of obedience, a perfect son of the covenant, as the Spirit began to probe his conscience and he began to awaken and realize what a monster of iniquity he was. And the law did something to him that he wouldn't have expected. Here he is teaching the law was the path to life. And he found the law, when it collided with his own sinful nature, actually made him a worse person. Now we'll say more on that in a minute. And the question was raised, one of his preemptive questions he raises multiple times throughout the book. Is there something wrong with the law? And of course the answer is not at all. The problem is sinful humanity, which is by nature unable to obey the law. And so now we get to verses 14 and following, and the age-old theological discussion I touched on last week, I'll just mention it by way of review, is Paul from verses 14 onward speaking as a lost man or a saved man? May I say that your perspective on that is most critical in this battle. I believe it's a sad thing when people relegate Paul to being lost here because what they do is rob God's people, Christian people, of one of the major passages helping us in our Christian growth and our sanctification. And again, let me just give the three reasons I say that. I'm not going to devote a lot of time to it. Why do I think, why, do, why am I confident Paul was saved at the end of Romans 7 or that he was talking as a saved man? One is just the progression of the book itself justification is dealt with, and then we're on to the subject of Christian growth, sanctification, so it fits in with the progression of the doctrinal teaching. Uh, secondly, more definitively than that, is the present tense of the verbs from verse 14 on. If you look at verses 7 up to verse 14, it was past tense. It's what did happen, what I was, what the law did. Then you get to verse 14 and you go forward, and it's present tense he's speaking. I am carnal! Not I was. I am. And then adding more weight to that is some of the statements in the text that are only true of Christian people, like verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Friends, a lost person cannot say that. I mean, he may read the Bible. He may sit in church for decades but he doesn't have a love for the inspired Word because of what it exposes in him. He doesn't have a love for the Word of God showing him like a mirror what he really is in the sight of God. Only a saved person can make that statement. 
someone who's gone through the new birth. So now we ended last time in verse 14 where the tenses do change from past to present. So keep in mind chronologically in Paul's existence there had been a supernatural change that occurred between those two experiences that he's relating. Now Paul's speaking as one who has a new nature, one who's been regenerated, one who has an inward desire to please God, which is one of the things that salvation produces. Now, yes, that may wax and wane. There may be struggles. Sometimes it's difficult with our children discerning some of this stuff. But the general pattern, especially with someone who comes to Christ in adulthood, somebody says, well, I was saved last month, and they have zero desire to please God. They have no care to read His Word. They make no effort to be around God's people. They could care less about God's commandments. I want to tell you that's a strange type of Christian in the Bible. In fact, it's non-existent. So salvation is called a new birth for a reason. It makes a change. But now, now the war starts. It's very critical to understand here that Paul brings the same corrupted, vile sin nature right into the discussion of daily life as a child of the living God. Let me ask a little bit of a loaded question. When you were saved, I'm not asking how you felt or anything like that, biblically, when you came to Christ, what happened to the character, now listen carefully, the character of your old fallen nature? When you came to Christ, what happened to the character of your old nature? The answer is nothing. In other words, when you were regenerated, when your spirit was raised to life, you were given another nature. So that now you possess two as a child of God. Now the warfare really begins. Now, I don't have the time to illustrate it this morning, but that term sin nature is extremely accurate because if you trace it through Romans 7, it has its own intellect, emotion, and will. Nature is a very, very accurate term. When you think about your sin nature for a minute, it has a memory It remembers things you've done and who you've done them with. It remembers the music that was playing, the smells that were in the air. It has an intellect, a conniving, thieving intelligence. It has a will that it's going to exert to make you try or try to make you defy God. It's kind of like what happened to the character of the Canaanites when Israel was given the title deed to the land. The Lord says this is the Jews' land now. What happened to the character of the Canaanites? Nothing. They didn't rightfully possess the land. It didn't belong to them. Yet there they were because they were given a sphere in which to operate. Amazing, you go through the book of Joshua and you can find statements that say none of these enemies are going to be able to stand before you. And then you find some that say they could not defeat them. A contradiction? No. But because they got away from God, they didn't have the spiritual power to prevail over those Canaanites. There's definitely an application to that in our Christian life also. Now, notice the terms in verse 14. And Paul had just said, answering about, is the law bad? He says in verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. He says in verse 14 at the beginning, for we know, and he's stating it as a universal truth among God's people, we know the law is spiritual, pneumatikos, 
derived by the mind of the Holy Spirit. He's saying far from being bad, the law is a reflection of the Holy Spirit's character. But oh, look at the opposite statements. But I am carnal, he says. Just the opposite. Fleshly. Fallen. And then he says he's sold under sin. He's a slave to do evil and under its mastery. I think it's referring to the practice of selling wartime slaves. When they conquered another army, they would often take them at spear point and put them on the auction block and sell them to other nations for extra revenue. Now, I hope you're asking the question. This is important. Don't miss this connection. I hope you're asking the question, isn't this the same Paul that wrote Romans 6 where we were taught that we are dead to sin positionally? We've been given that platform. I don't feel dead. Well, Paul's talking positional truth. In other words, sin only has the dominion that you give it. Well, how can Paul say we're dead to sin and then say something like this, that I'm sold under sin? I think the difference is Romans 6 is a positional statement from God's vantage point. That's what we're to know and reckon to be true and yield unto God, yield before the right throne. This statement here in Romans 7, and what you'll find in the rest of the chapter, it's an experiential statement. He's speaking in terms of human experience. And he's saying, I see that the law is lofty and holy and good, but then I look at myself and I know I'm I'm dead to sin positionally through the crucifixion of Christ, but yet I look at myself and it's like I'm sold under it. And he's wondering what's, what's going on. Basically, I think it's like one who charges into the Christian life thinking that his old nature has been eradicated or so severely weakened he doesn't have that problem anymore. And it's an anecdotal statement, but I've run across many believers who would echo that by their own experience. I know it's true of me. I came out of the world age 19, on fire for God, and if you'd have asked me, I may not have even said it, but what I was thinking was the old life and the old passions I used to have, yes, theologically they're dead, but my thinking was basically, I really can't be touched with that anymore. I'm impervious to those temptations. What I didn't understand is the Roman seven battle. And then some time goes by and flesh rises up. You become a grasshopper in your own sight and you wonder what in the world is going on. I thought I was impervious to that. I thought that couldn't touch me anymore. I thought that temptation was, I thought I was beyond it. Oh, even though the inward Canaanite, so to speak, has been sentenced to death by the authority of God Himself, he still dwells within his walled city for a time unchanged. So, here's what Paul finds. And again, I thank God for who he had write this, humanly speaking, and how deeply personal it is. Paul could have written this in the third person. Or he could have written it theoretically. He could have said, a man who comes to Christ has this happen. And that would have been helpful. It would have been just as true. But think what it means when the man who's, I don't like these type of titles, but you know what I mean, when the man who's widely considered the greatest Christian to ever live (laughs) says, This is what I faced as a believer. You mean there's hope for me? Yeah. So here's what Paul finds. Verses 15 and 16. First of all, at times, he absolutely hated his own actions. 
Look at verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. Now that word allow is an interesting word there. It's the word gnosko, which is often translated to know something. And it actually talks about a progress in knowledge. So he's saying as I grapple with this sin nature, the more I discern and look into myself, a lot of times I don't make sense to me. I, I don't understand what's going on. And then he goes on to further explain, well, what do you mean, Paul? For what I would do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. He's saying, I look at myself and I find the very thing I want to do, I don't. And then the thing that I, I don't want to do and I hate, I do it. And he's saying, what's going on with this? Does that sound familiar? In verse 16, all the while I'm failing, I don't want to fail. He says, verse 16, if I do that which I would not, He's saying, when I do the things that I don't want to do, now listen to this, I consent unto the law that it is good. He's saying, all the while I'm doing what I don't want to do, I am agreeing with the law of God that condemns my action, and I know it's wrong, and I agree with God all the while. Paul? Paul had that struggle? <laughs> Yes, he did. Every Christian, to one degree or another, is going to face this. I find myself, he says, in agreement with the law of God that's condemning my actions, and yet I feel as though I'm powerless to stop. Let me just say, though, by way of encouragement... That's one of the evidences that you do belong to Christ. This very war. When you were lost, you didn't have this type of struggle. Because you could care less what God said, at least when it came to the deeper issues. So rejoice in that. Parents, it's so, so critical to understand this battle, what I just said with your children. We ought to be so careful with the salvation of our kids and not force them through these gimmicks. Take time to teach the gospel. Take time to pray and look for evidence of salvation. Make sure it's a work of God. But as they're growing, don't forget, they're not only growing in Christ as a Christian, they're growing from the platform of a child. Physically. Be very slow to throw things at him like, well, see, I knew you weren't saved. You ought to be careful with those words unless you have to say that. Because they're going to fight, especially you take a kid raised in a Christian home and uh, he he or she, they, they start hitting adulthood and all of a sudden they have these adult-sized passions. And do you know what's happening a lot of times? They don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. And uh, why don't you, why, why'd you do that? I, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Didn't you do it? Yeah, why? I don't know. Did you want to do it? Not really. Why'd you do it? Just don't know. Are you going to do it tomorrow? I don't think. What do you mean you don't think? Well, I might. Why? I don't want to. See? Now, wait a minute. Examine yourself. See, this is where a theological understanding says, son, daughter, let me tell you what's happening and let me tell you you're in good company. But let's work through this together. 
And so we, we come alongside as a fellow soldier. And rather than treating them like you're shocked that they have the very thing the Bible says they're going to have, you say, oh, well, you ought to expect this. Let's work through it. Because God's already told you this battle's going to happen. So what Paul does next is essentially assign blame in the right place. Now read verse 17, and then we've got to contextualize this. He says, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, on the surface, what does that sound like? It starts with an E. Blame shifting. Excuse? Come on, parents. Uh, you find one of your children. They, you said, don't touch the cookies. And uh, Junior goes in and he eats four of them. And you saw it. And you ask him, you say, say now, what happened to those cookies? And he says, I don't know. You say, well, son, I saw it. So now you not only disobeyed me, you lied. And he says, Father, it's not me that did it. It's the sin dwelling in me. Uh, nice try, Junior. So he's not, he's, not, he's not blame shifting. You can imagine some of the early heretics ran wild with that. And so do people today. He's... He's not, I mean, this is the same Paul that wrote the other epistles, who was brutal on sin. He's not making an excuse, but what he's stating is the fact that he possesses two natures. He's understanding that. He's got a new nature. Now, now this is critical. He's got a new nature, and if you're a Christian, so do you. You have a new nature, and that new nature only desires righteousness. That's all it wants. And now you have an old nature, still. The old nature only desires evil. They are both 100% one way or the other. So he's saying the fact that he still commits acts of evil isn't a reflection on the work of regeneration that God has performed. He's not blaming God for doing an imperfect work. But he's acknowledging that he still has a shockingly corrupt old nature and that this is the great enemy he has to combat. Uh, really, I think the emphasis is more on that word dwelleth. That's a powerful word. It, it means to take up a long-term residence, to try to rule the roost. And listen, there's no help in denying its presence. I, I really, I pity those who try, and there have been many. John says in 1 John 1.8, there's several if we say statements there. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, and the singular is talking about the sin nature. If we say we have no sin, if somebody says, I don't possess that kind of nature still, John says you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. I know they're part of that trifecta of enemies. That's what your flesh is. You've heard it many times if you've been here, but let, re, let me remind us how those enemies work together. You have an invisible, powerful, seductive, relentless, purely evil enemy known as the devil. A fallen angelic being that you cannot see, taste, smell, or anything with the physical senses. And what he and his pathetic minions are doing all the time is trying to make use of a visible and seductive world system that you can see, that you can touch, that you can drink, that you can listen to. And he's using that visible, seductive world to appeal to this undiminished traitor within. All of that is important. Finally, Paul acknowledges, verse 18, even as a believer, there's zero good in him. Look at verse 18. For I know. That's the word oida, which talks about coming to an understanding. He's saying the longer I grapple with this, the longer I strive with this, 
I am more and more convinced of this in me. And then he clarifies that is in my flesh, my old nature. Dwelleth no good thing. Like many statements we make, it sounds oh so poetic and spiritual. Oh, there's nothing good in me. Some of you had moments where the realization of that has been so powerful, it made you want to lie down and quit and never get up again. It's about where Paul's at here. In me, says, dwelleth no good thing. And that's experienced in the inmost soul to the point where we believe it's actually true. It hurts. Let me just give at this point a brief synopsis of the fallen nature. And this is just taking it out of Romans alone. Could jump ahead to Romans 8, verse 7. He says, the carnal mind is enmity against God for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now think about that. The old nature, I mentioned it has an emotion, intellect, and will. The old nature not only isn't subject to the law of God, it can't be. It cannot be sanctified. It cannot be changed. You cannot kill it. You cannot eradicate it. You can only repudiate and ignore its pleadings and give it no space to flourish, which is why Paul says, make not provision for the flesh. Why? Because it's still there. In chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, the sin nature can appear dormant for a while to the point where you think you've got it mastered. And then it will spring up in fury when it's provoked by something. With the entrance of light and truth, or maybe an attempt to change some long-standing sinful habit, all of a sudden you find the flesh rises up like a monster. Where'd that come from? And we see in those verses, the flesh actually will take the Scriptures and use them to try to make you a worse person. And it will twist the Scriptures and lead you to death. It's talking about your nature. This is how it's describing it. You know, you have a nature that actually wants to distort the Scriptures and use it to justify evil. I wish I could tell you as a pastor, I've never seen that. But I've seen it a lot. Chapter 7, verse 15, it's continually attempting to exercise dominion that it doesn't lawfully possess to make you sin against the living God despite the fact that you have a changed nature that hates to sin. So in essence, your fallen nature is a relentless accomplice of Satan, an avowed enemy of God which will spare no attempt to bring you under its cruel bondage to lie, cheat, steal, kill, destroy, defile, pervert, and distort everything in your life that it possibly can. And look at one of the key manifestations in verse 18. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. So he's saying, I know what's right. I desire to do what's right. But somehow, I can't find how to consistently do it. Again, in counseling over the years, 
I've heard that statement unwittingly paraphrased over and over and over again. It is such a joy to be able to turn here and say, did you know Paul had the same struggle? You're kidding me. I thought there was something wrong with me. Well, there is. You have a sin nature. (laughs) But you're in good company with that nature. I mean, somebody can memorize Scripture about why a thing is wrong. They condemn themselves. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then uh, the tendency still is to look inward to our natural self to fulfill supernatural desires, and it doesn't work. And really, all of us, to some degree, are living proof of what Christ said said to the disciples. Uh, Here they are at what should have been their finest hour. The Messiah is going to the cross. Now, could they have understood how monumental of a moment it was? No. And Peter had said, I'm going to never deny the Lord. And here they are in that garden that we look at so fondly to them. It was another trip to the garden until later. And here they are sleeping. An opportunity to pray with the Son of God in His agony. And they're sleeping. And the Lord says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. (laughs) You identify with that statement? The problem's not so much what a lot of the time. The problem is how. Now you read verses 19 and 20. It's similar to verses 15 to 17. For the good I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now that brings us to another vital principle to understand in verse 21. Now his use of the word law here is not talking about the law of Moses. It's using the word law as a general principle. He's saying, I find in a law, I find in a general principle, sort of like gravity, (laughs) That when I would do good, evil is present with me. I think every Christian should have that verse memorized. Because failure to understand that can lead to a whole lot of shipwreck in the Christian life. In other words, as long as you're dwelling on this planet as a mortal, anytime you determine to do good as a general rule, you can expect your corrupt nature within to exert its wicked influence. I mean, that verse, that's the reason why sometimes it is so difficult for you to read the Scriptures at times. That's why at times when If you have an appointed time for prayer, if you're honest, there are times when the last thing you want to do is pray. You'd rather do anything. Mow the lawn, paint the house. By the way, do you know in those moments it's actually honoring to God? To tell him, Lord, I'm here to pray. And it's the last thing I want to do. But I want to want to pray. And even though my flesh is fighting me, I want to do right. And here I am. You see, doing that is actually believing that God understands the battle just like He says He does here. When I would do good, evil is present with me. That's why some of you didn't feel like coming to church this morning. That doesn't shock me. It's not often, but there's times I don't feel like coming to church and I'm the one preaching. Because when I would do good, evil is present with me. Sometimes the great blessings come on the heels of obeying, don't they? Have some of you found that the times you want to go to church the least are the times it's the most blessing? A lot of times. Because you obeyed in spite of feeling. That's why. 
That's why when you determine you're going to change some long-term sinful behavior, all these years you've said, oh, I can probably take care of that whenever I want. And now here comes the moment of decision and you're going to deal with whatever it is. And what happens? Now it's ten times as hard as it's ever been. Why? Because the flesh may have laid dormant for a while because it thought it was in charge in that area. Well, now it's dominions challenged and now there's a war. You can expect it. That's why some of the most perverse thoughts and motives will assault your mind at the most sacred times, causing you to wonder if you belong to Christ at all. And those experiences and a thousand others like them aren't something that God condemns you for. But on the contrary, He tells you to expect them. You see, somebody who has a flawed view of the flesh, they think they should come in here and there'll never be temptation. And they'll always want to. And they think in the most spiritual activities, they're always going to feel like it. And unwittingly, they're being dominated by emotion. When theologically... Paul says, when I would do good, evil is present. It's going to fight me. Let me just give some broader applications on that law, that general principle. First of all, this war isn't going to end on this earth. <laughs> Friends, listen, th this is not, this shouldn't be a depressing statement. This should be a statement that teaches us how to war properly. You will never sanctify or eradicate your sin nature on this planet. It's going to be a war till the day you die. Denying that is no help. Please understand what I mean on this. Your motive will often not be 100% perfect. Let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not saying motive is not important at all. It is important. It's very important. We ought to be concerned with it. But here comes the battle. Uh, you're going to obey God in some area. I think young preachers face this a lot. They're going to preach and they begin to do introspection. Am I doing it 100% for God or is there 1% that wants to be recognized? And While that's a good question to ask, you can't let that stop you from doing God's work. Do you understand what I'm saying? I've run across Christian people, I think, who would never, they have the ability to sing. They would never sing a special because they're so endlessly panicked that they may not be 100% perfect in their thought process and so they never do anything. I can't serve God there because, well, what? Evil's present with you? I'm not justifying sin, but I'm saying expect that battle and don't let it stop you from serving God. If I didn't preach every time I had a war like this, I wouldn't preach very much. And please understand, I'm not justifying sin at all. But I'm saying when you do good, evil is going to fight you. It's going to assault you. It's not hypocrisy to obey in spite of feelings. I've heard that one too. Well, I don't feel like doing that. Do it anyways. Well, that's hypocrisy. Says who? I would say obeying in spite of the fact you don't feel like it is actual faith being demonstrated, not hypocrisy. God does not hold you responsible for temptations that come from within. Remember the discussion in James? Lust has to conceive. In other words, it's when you yield to the temptation that it becomes sin. Think, think of the difference in thought processes here. I mean, someone who doesn't understand this battle, they don't understand how horrendously evil and deceptive this old nature of theirs is. Every time they're on the verge of obedience... Here's what happens. They're shocked at the thoughts that suddenly appear and they seek some kind of explanation. Where'd that come from? I don't. 
Now they're filled with guilt and shame for being tempted at all. Next, they reason they shouldn't obey because their motives may not be perfect and they don't feel like it. Then they're filled with guilt for not obeying. And if their theology isn't fixed, they stay on this hamster wheel for years on end. But a Christian who takes this passage at face value, I'm going to obey God. Here comes this temptation. They're not shocked, first of all, because they know where it comes from and how evil their nature is. It's no surprise. Secondly, they reject the guilt that comes knowing they haven't yielded unto sin yet. Thirdly, they determine to obey despite the assault on their motive because why? Drawing near to God is the only means of purifying your motive in the first place. Someone says, I'm going to... I'm going to just hide in the shadows until my motive's perfect. Good luck with that. It'll never happen. It's only by drawing near to God that motives are purified. Let Him purify them as you go forward. So He gives a further explanation of His two natures in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. It means to rejoice. I rejoice in God's principles, He's saying, but... I see another law. Here's a principle again. I see another law warring in my members. No sooner does that sense of the presence and peace of God fade that it's like a thousand cannons from hell open fire against my serenity and holiness and I topple back to earth. And now I'm just as low as I was high. I'm just as carnal as I was spiritual. I'm just as anxious as I was at peace. I'm just as angry as I was calm. I hate my actions. I despise myself. What in the world is wrong with me? You're in good company. Now, it's this very sense, though, the fact that he's aware he's a living contradiction that brings him to cry out in such agony in verse 24. And again, let me say, if you can identify with this, if you can really identify with this, to some degree, it's evidence that God is at work. I believe it's only those who really want to please him that ever go through this kind of deep water. Look what he says. Oh, wretched man. Not that I was. That I am. That wretched means distressed and miserable. He's exhausted with the struggle, unable to continue, pinned to the ground with the weight of his distress. And he says, who shall deliver me? Friends, it's an ugly picture, but let me paint it for you. That terminology is like, here's a man. And he has this three-month-old rotting corpse tied to his back with cables. And the thing stinks to high heaven. It's heavy. It's miserable. And he's thrashing around like a maniac and he's trying to rip this thing off. And it won't come off. And all that happens is he's wearied to the point of exhaustion and he collapses to the ground and now he's pleading for help from outside of himself. You see, really a lot of the struggle in Romans 7 is a heavy dose of vitamin I. How am I going to fix this? How am I going to stop? So he comes to this crisis point. And notice when he's flailing around, the question in verse 18 is how to perform that which is good. The question is how. Now that he's collapsing, what's the question? Who? Oh, what a difference. And that's where this entire discussion's 
going. It's important to understand this. I mentioned your new nature desires only righteousness, but there's more to it. Your new nature has no power in and of itself. You have a new nature that desires good, but that new nature does not have its own power. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul says something similar to what he's talking about here. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, or by means of the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. There's this war. And then listen to what he says. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. He's saying you can't do the things that you know you should be doing. And so Paul's crying out, who shall deliver me? And what a wealth of hope is stated in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, there's great power available, but it's outside of ourselves. Law and law principle can't produce holiness. Standards and rules aren't necessarily a bad thing, but they themselves don't produce holiness. Separation from evil, you talk about another word that's treated as bad. Biblical doctrine of separation is absolutely critical. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But separation itself does not make you holy and spiritual. All attempts at self-sanctification, which is me fixing me by human effort, will end in failure. So the flesh is not just a present reality and powerless to perform good. It's also corrupt and wicked beyond description. And it's only as we grab hold of these positional truths of what Christ has indeed accomplished on our behalf and reckon them to be true and learn to abide in Christ based on His merit, not mine. That we find victory. It's interesting, going into Romans 8, Romans 6, you remember the key word was sin. Over and over again. Romans 7, the key word was law. Trying to achieve sanctification by lists of rules. It's no surprise that in Romans 8, the key word is spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is shine the spotlight on the glorious truths of Christ and provide us with the power to do good and to shun evil. I'm not saying this should be some kind of a you know, wrongful, dead habit, but I'm, I'm telling myself this too, by the way. I don't think it would do us... I think it would do us much good every morning to wake up and parade through your mind all the things God says you are in Christ. Adopted, chosen before the foundation of the world, accepted in the beloved, heirs of God in Christ Jesus, sealed with the Spirit, in Christ, seated in the heavenlies, loved with an everlasting love, and on and on we could go. None of those things ever change because of the war I'm talking about. And it's as we behold those not me. I like how Spurgeon said it. For every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Introspection has its place, but a heavy diet of introspection will only depress you because there isn't anything good residing in you. It's as you behold Him, you're changed from glory to glory. Now, one of the benefits of this struggle in Romans 7 is a magnified sense of the grace of God as it really is. There's no merit in us. You know, for somebody to come to Christ, they have to at least have some sense of how evil they are. You can't get around that. You can't, you can't come to Christ unless you know something of how 
sick you are. But oftentimes we're shown as a Christian far more of how corrupt we are. And then we can look back and say, God still saved me. See, these skeletons tumbling out of the closet, they're not skeletons in the closet to the Lord. This doesn't shock Him. (laughs) He's not going to look at you and say, oh, you have that problem? I guess I take that back. No, friends, He already knows. And let me just give this as a side note. This is by decrees. We're almost done. Please stick with me. We'll be done in just a minute. This is by decrees. This isn't a dichotomy. Are you in the Spirit or are you walking in the flesh and everybody's in one of two categories? This is by degrees as we grow in Christ. Forgive me for sharing an illustration some of you have heard probably more than once, but it's very precious to me and I think it could be helpful to some. In fact, I was with Doug Ferret at Point McKenzie. And... Uh, I was just, you know, I'm out there teaching these men, and and I think at the time I was thinking about just my own lack of spiritual power. Lord, how can I preach the gospel with passion to these men that are dead in their sins? And they can sit there for an hour or hour and a half or two hours or two and a half hours sometime. One of the hungriest audiences I've ever had consistently. And yet they can walk out totally unaffected at the spiritual level. And uh, we were leaving there. I was just weighed down with that. And I was sort of in this mindset, if I can't be more spiritual, I should just quit. And uh, it it wasn't an audible voice, but it was as though the Lord was drawing my attention to His creation. And I walked out, it was the middle of winter, Snowy, you know how the ground gets just illuminated bright from the moon. But I look up, there's just a crescent moon. It was like the Lord was saying to me, that moon is utterly dead and has no life of its own. It only gives light as its face is turned to the sun. Now, its face could be more turned to the sun and be brighter, and it will be. But do you see, even as a crescent, it still gives a lot of light. Most of us are crescent moons, we would say. So in the midst of grappling through this and wanting to grow and pressing on, don't adopt the position that you have no light to shine in your current situation. That's baloney. That's baloney. Shine the light you have while you're pressing on, yielding your face more and more to the Son of Righteousness. I will end with verse 25. The battle lines are drawn here until we depart this physical body. He says, with the mind, I serve the law of God. But with the flesh, it's always serving sin and it will never change in this life. Of course, you and I are trichotomous beings, body, soul, and spirit. Your spirit is the part of you that was raised to life and given a new nature. Your soul is your emotions, intellect, and will, which are still subject to the ravages of Adam's fallen nature that you inherited from him. But the proper order, life is lived in your mind. The Christian battles are fought in the mind. That's why Romans 12.2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And your renewed mind is more and more fixed upon the unchanging truth concerning Jesus Christ and all that was accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. And based on that truth, the will follows that. The mind tells the will what to do. And at the back of the train, the caboose is the emotions. And they will follow eventually, but they're not part of the decision-making process because they will kill you more than they help. The mind leads the will, which leads the emotions. Now again, that sets the stage, which I'll commend you to. 
continue into Romans 8. There's no help in self. The phrase self-help is such a sick, pathetic joke, it ought to be banished from the earth. There is no self-help in that respect. Oh, what a glorious Savior we have, though. And let me ask this. Are you in Christ? Not, have you made some sort of profession? Did you start going to church or have you been dunked in water? Are you a real Christian? Have you placed your faith and trust completely in the finished work of Christ on that cross and His death, burial, and resurrection, what that accomplished on your behalf? And you say you're trusting Him alone. If not, He will save you today. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your goodness to us and I thank You for Your directness in telling us the way the battle is going to go. Lord, we need passages like this, and You know that, and we thank You for it, and we thank You that of all people, Paul is the one chosen to pen this. Help us, Lord, in this battle. I know one sermon isn't going to fix life forever. I know that this is a growth process, but I pray, Lord, that another block will be laid in Your building today. And that as a result of being here, we'd have our minds more fixed upward on Christ and less on our own effort. In Jesus' name, amen.